Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to John 6. Before we sang the gospel, that's called the gospel song. That's a song we need to put to memory. It's a great one to rehearse just the nuts and bolts of what the gospel is, isn't it? Holy God took my blame, bore my sin. I thank him for it. We're in John chapter 6, we're in verses 16 to 25. We're not going to study all the verses that we're going to read this morning. We're really going to move from the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. We'll talk a little bit about some hanging chads that I left last week to finish that up. And we'll move into this second miracle that happens on the day when Jesus walks on the water. And I want you to notice what it says here. We're going to start reading in verse 15. He says, perceiving then, they were about to come. They were going to take him by force. This crowd, thousands of people who have seen Jesus feed them with the lunch of a little boy. With all the leftovers and everything that happens. And this crowd is astounded. He could equip an army. They're going to take him by force, use violence, that's really the word, and they're going to make him king. So Jesus withdrew. He went back up onto the mountain by himself. We find in the other Gospels he went up there to pray. Went up there to pray. You know, sometimes we say, You know, I hear people sometimes say, you know, my my church is the mountains, and I just go out in the mountains, and that's where I find the Lord. I get it. You, You need to be here, though, okay? We need each other. But I'll tell you what, there is no place to connect with the Lord like being out in his creation with him one on one. That's where the Lord did it, right? Up on the mountain. He pours out his heart to the Father. I hope when you're out in the mountains that that's a time for you in the quietness, getting away from it all. It's you and God, and you connect with it. Jesus did. It then tells us in verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. There's a lot in that phrase that we got to unpack in a few minutes that we will see also in Matthew and Mark, how Matthew and Mark give us a few more details as to why they do this. It's, you know, it's not like you, mom and dad, who, you know, you can't find your kids after church, so you just leave, right? Oh, they'll find a way home. It's not like that with the disciples. Like, where'd Jesus go? You know, he's just up on a mountain. I guess we'll go cross the lake, and he can find his own way. We'll find out more why they do this. You know, when evening came, his disciples go down to the sea, they get into a boat, they started to to cross it to go to Capernaum. Now, in the other gospel, it says they're going to Bethsaida and to the plain of Gennesaret. And what you find is, you know, Gennesaret is the plain. Capernaum and Bethsaida are twin cities that sit at the kind of the mouth not the mouth, I guess it, maybe that's the mouth, of where the Jordan River begins to flow into the Sea of Galilee. On either side of that, there's Bethsaida and Capernaum. 
plain of Gennesaret right there. And so they're going there, back to kind of hometown where they're used to fishing from. And it was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. He's, he's really giving us a, a foreshadowing of what's to come in the text. He's letting us know that something's going to happen here. Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea had become rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, widest point, Galilee's like 13, and they're crossing kind of kitty corner up. They haven't gotten real far in their journey. Three or four miles, they're fighting it all the way. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. Tells us in Mark, he was walking on the sea as though he would pass them. It's like they're fighting it. And they look over and there is Jesus walking on by. They saw Jesus walking the boat, coming near the boat, and they were scared to death. But he said to them, it's me. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in boats. They went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Amen, amen, I say to you. He doesn't say, I'm glad to see you. He doesn't tell them how he got there. He says, you're, I mean, he, Jesus just has this uncanny way of going to the heart of the issue, doesn't he? He says to them, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that corrupts, that molds, that perishes. Instead, work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father set his seal. We'll look at some of those things that Jesus says next week as we move along. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would quiet our hearts before you speak, O Lord, through your living word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just give me freedom as we go through this text to just communicate. 
Lord, help me not to say more or less than you would have me to say, to just say what you want me to say as we look at this. Help me to skip things I need to skip. Help me, Lord, to develop things that you want developed. I pray the Holy Spirit, you would take control. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. The most repeated command in Scripture. What do you think? Love one another? It's there, isn't it? Love one another? How about this one? Be holy. That one's there, isn't it? It's a command in Scripture. Be holy. You know what the most repeated command in Scripture is? Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. That is the most often repeated command in the Scripture. In fact, it is mentioned, that command appears 365 times in the Bible. You got one for every day. Boy, that'd make a good study, wouldn't it? Do a devotional, a day with the Lord. Stop being afraid. Hopefully by the end of that year, if we did that devotional, we'd quit being afraid. Fear. It's me. Stop being afraid. It's me. I want us to think this morning how fear is crippling. It can cripple us. I also want us to think this morning about how fear does not dissolve by just like focusing on my fear and saying I'm going to conquer it. Fear is conquered in relationship, specifically with Christ. When I was a young boy, the reason I chose the scripture reading today Uh, for Dave to read Psalm 56 is because there's some verses in there about fear. One of the verses says this. I'm going to quote it from the KJV because that's how I learned it. But it's not how I was read to us this morning. But in the old King James said this, what time I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. Or like we read this morning, whenever I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. When I was about seven, eight years old, I don't even remember why this happened, but I think, looking back on it, it was because my grandpa had died. He was just over 50, and he had gotten cancer. Um, We had just gotten out of the military, not me out of the military, my dad had just gotten out of the military. Uh, We had been in England, and we had moved back to Pennsylvania. And... um, One of the reasons that my folks came back to Pennsylvania, not only my my dad had been discharged with a medical discharge, and he had been in, uh, was it Walter Reed or one of them places, and and then as a result of that, um, we we were back in Pennsylvania, but also one of the reasons was because my grandpa was sick with cancer, and he died. He was a young man. I still remember my dad having a tremendous burden for his dad sharing the gospel with him, and in praying to accept Christ. But shortly after that, I just went through this stage where I was afraid to die. 
And I'd accepted Jesus as my Savior. I'd prayed the prayer and all that stuff as a kid, and I think I was sincere, but I was afraid to die. I remember one night getting up. I couldn't sleep, and I got up, and I went downstairs, and I talked to my mom and dad. They were down there doing something. Who knows what moms and dad do after kids go to bed? But they were sitting down on the couch, and I went down and talked to them, and I, I just, they said, what are you doing up? You know, get back to bed. And I said, I'm afraid. And rather than just shoot me back to bed, they recognized it as a teachable moment. Parents, we need to do that with our kids. Sat me down and talked to me about it. Why are you afraid? What are you afraid of? Well, I went to school, and I was in a Christian school. And a couple days later, my pastor showed up in the class, and he said, is Tim Moyer here? And I was like, shrinking down in my seat, right? I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to know I got to talk to the pastor. What did I do? I must be in trouble. He called me in. Well, Dad had turned me into the pastor. (laughs) And he called me in. And he took his Bible and he opened his Bible to Psalm 56. And he said, Tim, I want you to memorize this verse. Now, this little boy, what time I am afraid, I will trust in you. Because that's the way I memorize it in the KJV. Whenever I get afraid, you know how I say it to the Lord? In the KJV, right? Whatever time I'm afraid, whatever time that I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Now, some things happened there in my life that were very important. One was not just that I got to figure out how to deal with fears. It was that my pastor taught me how to use the word of God. And I was only seven. Thy word I have hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. God's word is a sword. It's a tool. It lives. It abides forever. And God has given it to us to use. It's not just something we read. It is something that we utilize. So whenever I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Okay, so rather than looking to self, rather than focusing on what I'm afraid of, I put, boom, trust in Christ. It is an action that I must engage in to rely upon him and not to to fret and not to fear. That's the way we are to use God's word. Kids, begin to use God's word that way. That's an important thing. God's word is to be used daily. We were talking about searching the Scripture, weren't we? Just two weeks ago, and then last week again, from the last chapter, we were talking about searching the Scripture and how we should search the Scripture because in them we think we have eternal life and they point to Christ. And we are to accept Christ, we're not to refuse Him. But we search the Scripture. I was listening this week to a conversation that John MacArthur, you've all heard of John MacArthur, Johnny Mac had this conversation, you know, some young whippersnapper is asking him, you know, how can I have an effective pulpit ministry. How can I be an effective preacher of the Word of God? And, you know, you would think, you know, John MacArthur would say something, you know, really sounding spiritual. But he actually didn't say something that sounded very spiritual. You know what he said? This is what he said. Keep your rear in the chair until the work is done. 
keep your rear in the chair till the work is done. In other words, they're saying, search, work hard, put energy and effort into understanding God's word, into knowing God's word. My friend, Christian, we need to keep our rear in the chair till the work is done. To understand God's word, to be able to utilize God's word, that it would be a tool that would help us in overcoming the fears that we face. We're talking about fear today, but I want to remind us our main point from last week was when we were talking about Jesus and how they, they, they want to make him king. And what we were talking about is this reality. When Jesus' followers see what Jesus can do, he could feed 5,000. We are always tempted to making him into something that he isn't. So, yes, he is king. He's king of the universe. But his followers, see, he can feed 5,000 people. And they're going to make him king now. And they're going to do it by whatever means it takes. And we talked about this truth. And this is important in our message in a few minutes. Jesus' followers, as Jesus' followers, we are always tempted to try to make him do our agenda. Instead of submitting to his. We always are trying to do that. They're going to make him king today. Well, they were going to take force and do that. And we talked about this reality that Jesus' earthly rule will never come by his followers using physical force to institute it. That is not how his kingdom will come. Now, I woke up Monday morning with a question in my head then as a result of what we talked about last week. Before I went to bed, I read the text that we were going to pre that we're preaching on today, and I was thinking about that. And I thought I'd probably wake up in the morning thinking about Jesus walking on the water. Instead, I thought about this, and I woke up with this question: Well, does that mean then that Christ's followers can never use force or violence to stop evil? Does it mean that? Because remember. Jesus' followers are going to use force to make him king. They're going, to, they're going to, by any means available, they are going to make this happen. Well, can we translate that when we say, no, Christ's kingdom will not come by force. His followers cannot use violence, the crusades, or anything to bring in the kingdom. But does that mean that Christ's followers are then forbidden to use violence or force to stop evil, to resist evil? I don't think that's what we're talking about at all. Uh, a lot of people in America are wrestling right th with that right now because of this new movie that's out called Sound of Freedom, right? You know, there's evil out there in the world, and it is evil. And we're not going to bring in the kingdom by violence, but there are times that the only way to stop evil is by force. And I don't think that Christ's followers are forbidden that. Now, this could be an entire message, and that's not what the Lord wanted me to preach on today. So I'm going to go through the next slides really quick, and you won't be able to read them. But I want you to think about that. And we can talk about it more. This is a big thing here. It's a big thing that we've got to wrestle with as believers. So here we go. Ah, see, you didn't even get to read it. Two miracles that are closely linked. Okay, let's go into the text. 
because this is what I want to focus on for a little bit this morning. There are two miracles that are closely linked in all the Gospels. One is the feeding of the 5,000, the other is the walking on the water. Walking on the water comes right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. The two are really closely associated, as we read in the text this morning. But there are also two miracles of note that we often don't talk about. The other is, in this connection, Peter walks on the water. Now, John doesn't even mention that. But remember, when Jesus is coming near the boat, Peter says what? If it's really you, Lord, bid me come to you on the water. And what did Jesus say? Come on, buddy. Right? Come on. Come on down. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he's the only guy in, in history to walk on water. He takes his eyes off Jesus, and he begins to sink. And then he begins to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father and Lord in heaven, now what did he say? Lord, save me. He just cries out, Lord, help me. And the Lord did. But what we see here then is in this passage embedded in it, there are really four miracles. First of all, there's the feeding of the 5,000, then there's the walking on the water, and then there's Peter walking on water, and then, get this one, these guys have been rowing and they've gotten three or four miles from evening till the fourth watch of the night, three to six in the morning. Somewhere in there, Jesus comes to them. I mean, they've been fighting it. Jesus gets in the boat, the boat all of a sudden finds placid water and it goes boom. It's like Scotty beam me up. Remember the old Star Trek? I mean, boom, it says immediately they were at the place that Jesus wanted them to go to. And so we see really, in essence, four miracles in this short span of time that Jesus does that are really, truly amazing. Now, if we think about the setting of the incident, let's just think about a few things here real quickly. The geographic features of the Sea of Galilee. Again, it's about the size of Yellowstone Lake. This isn't like, it's not even as big as like one of the great lakes in the United States of America. Lake Erie, Lake Her whatever all those great lakes are. I don't remember from geography. It's not in my backyard. But Yellowstone Lake, something like that. But here's the deal. We see many times in Scripture when the disciples are out on it, what happens? Big storm. Now, why did that happen? Here, here's the reason that happens. Obviously, God, in his providence brings the storm he wants the disciples to face on that particular occasion. But it's common in that area. Now, here's the reason. North of the Sea of Galilee is the mountain range of Mount Hermon that goes up into Lebanon. Mount Hermon is snow-capped, and it's about 9,500 feet. Now, I live in Idaho, right back here in Auburn, in the Taigi Valley. 
And the peaks just to the west of us, the Webster Range, are about 9,500 feet. That's like the top of Mount Hermon. But the Sea of Galilee, now think about where we sit today in relationship to the top of Webster Ridge. We're at 6,000 here, right? 6,000 feet, and we're going to go 95, so if you're good at math, that's what? 3,500 feet. Now, if you're going to go climb that mountain, that's a hoof. But think about this. Mount Hermon is 9,500 feet, and these guys are rowing at about 700 feet below sea level. 700 feet below sea level. So you've got a span of over 10,000 feet in elevation, whereas we've only got three. That's a huge change. You have hot air below sea level, tremendously hot air, and you have cold air at the top of Mount Hermon, and you have brewing thunderheads, you have vacuums that are created, and what it does is coming down the Jordan Rift, it creates huge windstorms. It's like a wind tunnel. We, we spent, I've just spent 10 years on a ranch in the Wapiti Valley up by Cody, and the North Fork of Yellowstone there on the North Fork of the Shoshone, it's like a wind tunnel. I'll tell you what. I mean, it blows. When we would feed the cows, it was like cows standing with your mouth open because you're going to have to grab it as it goes on by. I mean, it was just, it would blow like you cannot imagine. And it would whip up the Buffalo Bill Reservoir into waves. And you did not want to be out there when it's like that. I mean, it is a rough sea. And that's what these guys are facing. And they're rowing against it. Now, if you think about the context of the miraculous day, there's some things we learn in Matthew and Mark that are important here for our message. First thing as we see is the reason Jesus goes from the one side of the Sea of Galilee around Capernaum over to where he feeds the 5,000 is because he has learned, although he already knew it, he learned through the disciples, that John the Baptist had just gotten his head cut off. He's not afraid, but he withdraws to be alone, to be in a quiet place. Also, the disciples were extremely weary, it tells us in the text, because they had just been on their first ministry tour, and they had just come back to report to Jesus. So notice what it says in Mark. When the disciples heard of it, this is John's beheading, they came and they took his body and they put it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus. They told him everything that they had done and what they had taught when they had been in the villages of Galilee. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and we're going to have some R&R. Because many were coming and going, they didn't even have time to eat. So they go and they get in the boat to go to a desolate place by themselves, and many saw them going. And they knew who they were, and they ran from all the towns, and they get there ahead of them. So Jesus is taking his disciples to do what? Get away from it all, 
and see nobody. It's like you come from, I don't know, let me pick on a place. I shouldn't pick on California. So let's say you're coming from Utah, and you're going to go to Yellowstone, and you're going to be away from everybody. Yeah, with two million other people, right? What do we all say? Have fun up there, right? You'll see a lot of people up there. So Jesus is going to cross the lake to do what? Be away from everyone. He's going to have some downtime. He's going to spend some time with his disciples. And when they show up on the beach, who beat them? All the people. And what does Jesus say? I don't have any time for you. My plan was to get away. I'm not going to deal with you. It's my day off. This is a big teaching moment for Jesus' disciples, by the way. That ministry is 24-7. It's not 9 to 5. That's what Christ calls us to as his followers. It's a life. So why did the disciples seek to leave Jesus and cross the sea? Immediately, he made the disciples, this is Mark, now it's not in John, but it's important to note this, immediately he made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the crowd away because they were trying to make him king. And he doesn't want his disciples to hear that and be a part of that. So he puts them in the boat and says, go to the other side. After he had sent them all away, he goes up on the mountain to pray. So in John, it tells us they're going across the lake, but it doesn't give us all the details. What we find is the reason they are going across the lake is not just because they, oh, I don't know where Jesus is, I guess we'll just go. No, it's because Jesus told them, go get in the boat and cross the lake. And I'm going to go spend some time up on the mountain alone to pray. And I'm going to send the crowd away. Now, why is that important? The first thing is this is a long night out on the lake. This is the fourth watch of the night. You mothers know what this one is. You know, three to six. They've rode three or four miles in strenuous and futile effort. And here's the point that I want to drive home today. These guys were tired when the day began. You ever had one of them days? I mean, it's been going and it's been incessant and it's been nonstop. Demands, demands, demands. And then they get where they think they're going to have a day off. And they have served the crowd. And then after they've served the crowd, the master says to him, get in the boat, start the motor, and get home in a hurry. Is that what? No, what do they have to do? They are going to get in a boat, and they are going to have to row and cross the lake. What do they got ahead? More work. Even if they don't get into a storm. They were tired when the day started. They didn't get to do what they wanted to do, which was hang out at the lake and meet nobody. Instead, they had to feed 5,000 hungry men. And then they get in the boat and they're going to row it. Can you hear the grumbling? Can you? I can imagine. 
because I'm a man too. I can imagine what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, why could we not wait till tomorrow? What is so pressing, Jesus, that we got to get in this boat and cross the lake tonight? We don't have anything on the agenda for tomorrow. Why can't we just sleep here on the beach? And then to boot, you know, these guys are fishermen, and they've been on this lake a lot, and they're saying, what? They're fighting these waves, and they're saying what under their breath? I could have told you so. I could see those storm clouds brewing. I knew this was going to happen. Can you hear them? You've been there, done that one? I have. They are weary they are frustrated. They are toiling. What was Jesus teaching them? He was teaching them exactly what we learned at the beginning. Jesus' followers are always tempted to try to make him do what we want to do instead of submitting to his will. That's what he's teaching them. It's another lesson in that front. This is the school of the master. He is teaching his men something. This thing is not about you setting your agenda and you doing what you want. This is about you having a will that is broken before me to do what I want. There was no other reason for them to have to cross the lake that night. He's teaching them. Following Jesus' agenda does not insulate us from trouble and hardship, does it? It brings us into the headwinds of opposition. And that is exactly what these men are facing. And then Jesus comes to them and he says, it's me, don't be afraid. It's me. Stop being afraid. That is actually the force of the command. He's not saying don't start being afraid. He is saying, stop being afraid. There are so many things that we could talk about with fear. You know, fear is a Greek word for which we get the word phobia. And there's all these phobias, right? You heard of phobias? You know, there's public speaking crowds, germs. This is the big thing. You know, some of you are real germ freaks. Especially the COVID thing that went on in our country, right? Heights, blood, going to the dentist, flying water, the dark, storms, tight spaces. We could go on and on and on and on. Those are like the ten top, top ten phobias. What is fear? What is fear? Let's just think about it for a minute and then we'll shut up and close. Sense of threat, danger, or harm. That's what fear is. It's a, it's a sense that we have that God has given to us, by the way, as a result of something that we will see in a minute. It doesn't ultimately, it wasn't part of our initial creation, but it comes to us that God has brought it into us as a part of a defense mechanism in this fallen world. And so it is when we have a sense of a threat, a danger, or harm that could come to us. There are rational fears. Some fears are rational, aren't they? When lightning's striking all around and you're up on a ridge, don't stand there with a, you know, a hanger above your head. You know, that's stupidity. 
It is rational to get down off the ridge. There are also irrational fears. And whenever we dwell on a threat, we increase its power over us. This is the first time that fear is mentioned in the Bible. Adam has sinned. He did exactly what God told him not to do. God had told them what? If you eat, the day you eat it, what will happen? You will die. Is that a real threat? that has real danger. I submit to you it is. God has said to them, you eat that, you will die. They do not know what death is in one sense, but they know it's not a good thing. He said, when God says, where are you, Adam? You're not walking with me in the cool of the day. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid. Because I was naked. This was a sense he had not had before. And what did he do? Because of his conscience that is now pricked. Because of the sin that he has committed. He hid himself from God. Or he sought to hide himself from God. They have covered themselves with fig leaves. They, they have tried to disguise themselves so God will not know what has happened and yet God who sees everything, who knows everything goes right to the point of what is wrong. I was afraid. It's important we make note of that that our fears ultimately come as a result of living in a sin-cursed world and being under that curse. And so when that is lifted, the child will play with an adder and the lion will lay down with a lamb because death and fear are gone. And then we see this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ, partook of the same things. We sang this this morning that through death, in other words, Jesus went into death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And by doing this, what did Jesus do? He delivered all those who through fear of death, and I want you to notice this, what fear does, it brings us into bondage. We're subject to lifelong slavery. Ultimately, an eternal perspective is what erases our fear. But that eternal perspective that erases our fear is in the person of Jesus. It's me. It's me. Stop being afraid. What did the angels say when they announced the birth of Jesus? Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. My friend, I want us to think about something. If you are here today and fear is the governing force of your life, Jesus is the only one who can help you. 
Fear management classes won't ultimately do it. It is Jesus. It's me, he said. It's me. He has dealt with the greatest thing that we dread, which is what? Death. And if he could deal with the greatest thing that we face, can he not deal with anything else on our list? It's me. Don't be afraid. What time I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord, for your word, for the truth that you have given to us. Father, you don't want us to be bound in slavery to fear and to sin. I pray that, Lord, that person that's here, I know there's someone here that's in that case. I know it, Lord. In a crowd this size, there are people here who are in bondage to fear. I pray that your Holy Spirit, Father, would quicken their heart in an understanding that it is Jesus, that they would look to him, that they wouldn't just develop a discipline of confronting fear and dealing with it that way, but they would put their trust in you. Help them to do that, all of us. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.